Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Can We Please Talk Podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Sperry. On the program today, the fantastic Ellie Honig is going to be joining us, the author of the book, Hatchet Man. Uh, he's a CNN legal analyst, former federal prosecutor. We can't wait to talk to Ellie about his latest book, which is in the top 10 on the Wall Street Journal recommended list. So Ellie's going to be joining us in a bit, but first I want to say hello to my co-host who has been on vacation and his face looks like it. So Nicholas, my friend, how are you? How was vacation? I'm good, man. Vacation was good. Yeah, we were down. We were down at the beach for a week. Um, it was yeah, cool. I could tell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Right. Um, it was awesome. You know, it was. Uh, I mean, just you know, health-related stuff, obviously. So. Yeah, just not a lot of mask worn, wearing. Wow, wearing. Uh, yeah, so shout out to the folks of Ocean City, Maryland, for uh, for not keeping it down. But uh, yeah, I mean, but it's Maryland as a state overall is um, actually I think at like eighty percent or higher on most maps as far as vaccination rates. So I remain hopeful that people are are doing the right thing. Uh, but overall, it was great. You know, the girls love being uh, being by the water. I'll say this though to anyone that has kids, vacationing with kids is not quite the same as an actual vacation. You do more. You know, life saving <laughs> with children <laughs> around the beach than anything else. So, um, but it was fun. It was nice, nice to get away. Laura and I had a good time. So, that's awesome. Great to hear. Uh, speaking of vaccinations and rates and things like that, we're going to get into a topic on that in the coming weeks. Uh, a, a doctor that's, you know, out there in the medical field, um, a prominent doctor actually, you can follow on, on Twitter, but we'll, we'll get into that. Later on, uh, news and notes uh, happening in D.C., all of the stuff with the January 6th uh, House Selection Committee. We're going to get into a bunch of different stuff uh, in the coming weeks with some more correspondents that are going to be joining us. I alluded to it uh, in last week's episode, but 
Ryan Riley from the Huffington Post is going to be joining us. Uh, Damon Cortez from Purple Room Politics is going to be joining us. So we got a bunch of fantastic episodes in the coming weeks uh, about a, a range of topics and news and notes happening in D.C. Something that's happened in D.C. that was written about is the subject of today's uh, uh, guest, Ellie Honig. Uh, obviously has been on the program before. I mentioned he's the former federal prosecutor, state prosecutor as well, uh, worked at the Southern District of New York. He's now a legal analyst at CNN, and also he hosts his own podcast, Third Degree Podcast, available wherever you can get your podcast, if I can say podcast one more time, Nick. So anyway, it's uh, Ellie's coming back on the program because he's got this book out there that I highly recommend people go check out. It's called Hatchet Man, How Bill Barr... Mm -hmm broke the prosecutor's code and corrupted the Justice Department. You know, um, there's a bunch of different things in this book um, that I took away from it. Uh, a lot of it is really centered on Bill Barr and what happened with the Mueller investigation, right? We all remember back in 2019 when, when Robert Mueller was appointed special counsel to investigate um, the Trump campaign and possible collusion, I hate using that word, but possible collusion with the Russian uh, government, right? Or, or Russian officials, whatever it was at the time that the Mueller uh, folks were investigating. And then uh, there was a different attorney general at the time. Bill Barr had written a letter as a private citizen uh, exclaiming in a couple of different areas why the president of the United States may have not committed a crime. Lo and behold, that got onto Trump's radar Barr becomes attorney general. And a lot of this gets brought up in Ellie's book. And I think one of the real central themes of it as to why he may have wrote it, we're going to ask him this in a bit, but was really uh, he worked there, obviously, in the Southern District of New York for a long time. You know, this is his old job. He has worked for other attorney generals, both Republican and Democratic appointed. And to see what happened in 2019 must have set a range of emotions. There was a letter written by a bunch of former federal prosecutors that worked at, at the DOJ uh, really, you know, denouncing what Bill Barr did in writing that summation when the Mueller report came out. So there's so many things uh, in the book that I learned. Uh, Ellie goes back and forth, not only between his personal career, but certain things that kind of happened that Bill Barr took a different direction on, whereas opposed to Ellie kind of followed the justice manual and the Department of Justice, you know, code of ethics, let's call it. Um, over there. Nick, what were some of your takeaways uh, in, in reading Ellie's book and, and obviously the subject matter overall as he kind of, you know, uh, examines Bill Barr's tenure as attorney general? Yeah, I mean, he, you know, Ellie drives home the point that this is an, this is a little unprecedented. I mean, the polit politicization of the Justice Department was something that just was really just stunning, you know, and we see coming out of the Mueller report. I um, mean, specifically the act that you're talking about, you know, with reference to the summation of the Mueller report, which was a just several hundred, maybe a thousand pages, what have you, uh, and boiling it down to a short memo that was read that really pulled incorrectly information from the report and to, you know, to the average consumer of information like you and I, um, or to just voters in general, we were essentially lied to. Um, you know, the highlights or whatever you want to call the purpose of that memo really downplayed some of the key findings, so much so that at some point, Bob Mueller came forward. It was like, that's that's actually not really what I said. Um, but, you know, but and contrast the two men, right? Like Bob Mueller is truly a man who is focusing on his job, which is, 
you know, I conduct an investigation. I'm special prosecutor conducting an investigation. Here's what I'm going to find. Actually, not special prosecutor. Sorry, special counsel. Um, and here are the findings. Do with it what you will. That was really the point of it. And the important details are the things that Congress can then make decisions about. And they did in the form of, you know, eventually voting to impeach. Um, but obviously not, you know, not through the Senate for obvious for political reasons. Um, but, you know, Bill Barr's actions basically were just to, and I think the title of the book is appropriate. Like he was Trump's hatchet man. Like that's not a representative of justice. It stands in stark contrast to what we're seeing currently right now um, with the current attorney general, Merrick Garland. Merrick Garland. Yeah. Um, you know, and we've seen previous attorney generals who don't necessarily act directly at the behest of the president. But, you know, in the case of Barr, that's exactly what we did. And ironically, the person you thought would have probably done it even more so was Jeff Sessions, who didn't do that. And as a result, was no longer in the seat. Right. Um, but Bill Barr stepped right in and did exactly what the former president wanted him to do. And, you know, Ellie, like any sensible person who, you know, serves in, you know, justice in the united states step forward like this is bullshit like this is absurd and this is an anathema to what the purpose of the justice department is and specifically to the role of attorney general so he does a fantastic job of boiling it down in a way that just any just reader can be able to pick it up and really see what what actually happened and i'll stress actually you know before the people you know want to come at us on tiktok or you know, our various social media platforms and right. say, well, oh that's that's a you thing this is a person who has experience in the justice system like any other guests we have on the show i would consider this person an expert in their field so when ellie honing is telling us that what bill barr did is out of bounds for the role of attorney general take that shit seriously yeah so, you know if you no. want to come out and say well that's that's your truth fine <laughs> call it what you want it's the truth and it's a great book and i would highly recommend it for anyone yeah you know a couple of things right um and we're going to ask him this when he comes on like i i there's emotions because, um, you know, you're kind of, in essence, relitigating a lot of what took place under Barr, and you're kind of giving attention to the previous administration, right? So there's a question right there, like, what, why the need to write something like this? Was it just that he had worked there for so long, and you see something so fragrantly, you know, flagrantly um, violated, you know, by the person that's supposed to be you know, the highest ranking official to, you know, uh, institute the law, you know, or at least uphold the law. Um, is that was that one of the driving factors of why he wrote this book? Um, you know, a couple of other things that I took, you know, and we, we're going to ask him about it, too, because he and I mentioned to it, he goes back and forth in the book, you know, quoting the justice manual or citing direct examples of times when the ethics uh, members at the DOJ would call him and say, hey, you need to recuse yourself from this. Um, this person previously worked with your father, you know, at a at a prior stint. So unfortunately, due to that, you need to recuse yourself. And it was a it was a smaller case at the time. He talks about it towards the beginning of the book. But just in that, you know, alone example, he had a, a, an indirect connection through his father to somebody else. He had to recuse himself. Bill Barr had this direct connection and like didn't recuse himself from the Mueller investigation. I think the other thing that I took away was kind of and, and at, towards the end of the book, Ellie kind of summarizes what an attorney general's role is and what Barr should have done. Um, but it's like what could have been done during, you know, there was this big letter, like I mentioned, of, of, of former federal prosecutors that wrote and said, hey, listen, 
this is wrong. We don't, you know, we don't find this. There was a, a federal judge as well that excoriated um, what, what was summarized in that four-page letter. But what can be done besides the president of the United States removing the attorney general from the Department of Justice, which clearly wasn't going to happen in this case, what else could have been done? That's something that Ellie can answer for us. And then, of course, you know, obviously Ellie's legal mind, we're going to put to the test because there's a lot of different news that's coming out, um, not only from what happened with the Trump organization in recent weeks, you know, the January 6th, um, arrests that are happening. And, and, and recently, some people have been actually uh, convicted and given jail time of some of these actions. But then one big thing I want to ask him about, too, is, you know, obviously, with vaccinations, Nick, you just alluded to it a while ago, there's a lot of private businesses now that are trying to institute stuff. And there's some states that are actually passing legislation that businesses can't do it. I'm thinking about the state of Florida has instituted some of that. So we're going to ask Ellie about some of those legal hurdles and challenges uh, and mandates with vaccinations, all of that, and his fantastic book. When we come back after the break, Ellie Honig is going to be joining us. Nick, today's episode is presented by Blinds.com. Apparently, you've used Blinds.com. Yeah, no, in my in our previous house, we we used them to um, to get you know just great blinds at a discounted price. Um, the quality was fantastic. They were easy enough to install because my wife and I actually did all the blind setup in our home. You know, we did the first floor, then we ordered again, got the second floor. But nice. pricing was fantastic. Quality is fantastic. We didn't even take the blinds with us. You know, we had set them up really nicely. The person who bought our home. Shout out to us because they, she's walking into a great situation. You know, they were super effective with, you know, just darkening our rooms. You know, big thing for us is, you know, for us, uh, my wife also with, you know, the kind of hours she works as a, as a physician, you know, when she gets home, like middle of the day, like she's got to be sleeping in darkness and those blinds are able to do the job. So, so right now blinds.com, I mean, this is, this is a pretty crazy number and you already said that it was pretty affordable already on the site, but 35% off everything. Nick, 35% off everything. That's a lot, my friend. I wish I wish I had that at the time. <laughs> like I said, I mean the I mean the price we got was fantastic, but I mean if you were to take that price, again, fantastic, and lop 35% off, yeah, man. Like we probably would have done I would have found other rooms. Like we, we, <laughs> right, we right. Just, just, just start throwing blinds everywhere. Yeah, of course we would have. Yeah. Well, That's whether you awesome, do it yourself, discount. Whether you do it yourself like Nick did or have them handle the install from start to finish, blind.com makes ordering custom window treatments online easy, free shipping, and a 100% guaranteed perfect fit, Nicholas. Dude, you get to, you. it's easy. I did it. I am not handy at all. No, My he's not. My wife more so than me, but we nailed it down. We kept our little ones sleeping during, during nap time. We did a whole floor in the house. I it's mean, like 12 that, window. Come it's on. like, this is like a success story, you know, like being told <laughs> when you watch those infomercials and you're just like, yeah, this guy did it too. And it has real actor, real person, not a paid actor. So that, that's the Nick Savary story. Like I am wearing like a sham wealth polo and like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. blinds.com folks. You go to the link in our show notes page. You shop right now. You get up to 35% off. I said it three, five. You're going to get 35% off. That's my Jack Kennedy impression. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hit that hit that link in our show notes page right now and head to blinds.com. Offer good until August 8th. Okay. In the words of Dion Warwick, that's what friends are for. This guest <laughs> is a friend of ours, 
I thought of this all night, Ellie, before you came on the program. Um, as I mentioned, he's a CNN legal analyst, a former federal prosecutor, the host of Third Degree Podcasts. This guy's got way too many jobs, but he has recently written a book, Hatchet Man, How Bill Barr Broke the Prosecutor's Code. Um, and you can go get that book available wherever books are sold. And that is Ellie Honig. Ellie, Mike and Nick, thanks for coming back on the podcast with us. Mike and Nick, I'm going to quote the same song right back to you, if I could. <laughs> keep course. smiling, keep oh, shining, well, there it is. There knowing you can always count on me. That's for it. Sure. That's it. That's what friends are for. <laughs> are you guys, you guys are too young. You don't even remember that I'm, song. Come on. Oh, well, come on. I'm only a few years I, removed. I'm a, yeah. I'm a member of Club 40. I'm not that. I'm not oh, all right. All right. And, I, and I'll, be in, I'll be in Club 40 in October. So. Okay. All right. Um, so, Ellie, let's get right into it. Yep. Because there was something I read in the book yesterday, and I didn't even know it. Um, that this book and this concept came off a Twitter DM. So, <laughs> so tell us a little bit, not only about why you wanted to write the yeah. book and kind of not revisionist history, but like going back on a former AG and kind of, you know, breaking down different points, but how yeah. it goes conceptually from a Twitter DM to an idea. I've been um, one of the things that I've been doing that people seem to have enjoyed is I've been sort of very transparent about the process of writing a book, because I think a lot of people wonder what goes into that. Is it something I can do? Right. Like how hard is it? How crazy is it? Um, I will tell you guys, I had, um, you know, a couple lines out there two years ago when I first started doing media. We, you know, through my agency, we had a couple of lines out there and we had we had some interest from some publishers and that kind of thing but nothing ever came fully to fruition and about a year ago right now late last summer I just you know once in a while I'll look at my Twitter DMs and there's all sorts of you know nonsense from bots and hate mail and nice stuff nice comments from readers and viewers and interesting questions and there was uh, in the those DMs not even the main one the one that goes to like your unsolicited messages box right, right? like this I call it the spam box just a 17 word email. And I quote it in, in the acknowledgement section of the book. And it basically says, would you be interested in writing a book about what Bill Barr has done to the justice department? Perens, this is an editor asking. And I quickly sort of researched him and realized he was, he had edited several other books for some of my friends. And basically we got on the phone and within two days we had a deal. I mean, it couldn't be more perfect for me. I could, you know, what my first reaction when I read his email, his DM was, yes, I would be interested in exactly that. It's perfect for me because um, as I talk about in the book, I spent eight and a half years at DOJ, 14 years total as a prosecutor. I've been very outspoken about DOJ and critical of Barr and now critical of Merrick Garland on different bases. Um, and my editor, Eric Nelson, um, had seen me on TV and read things that I'd written and thought I would have a good voice to write this book. And so very quickly, we we were right on the same page. And one of the great things that Eric said to me, uh, my editor from HarperCollins early on, is he said, I want your voice here. And I want you to, I don't want you to pull any punches. Um, you know, obviously you'll be responsible and it'll all be thoroughly fact-checked and all of that. But I don't just want sort of a list of facts. And so you guys, have, if you've read the book, the, the best compliment that a lot of people have given me is it really, it's, it's obviously your voice. It sounds like you talking. Um, it's got a sort of conversational 
Jersey style uh, feel to it. And that part of that is for, this is a long answer, sorry, but part of that is for entertainment value because a lot of the book is I take you behind the scenes. I tell trial stories, things that, you know, what's it like in the trial war room at the Southern District of New York right before you open? What happens when a judge gets mad at you? What happens when you have a witness who's too scared to take the stand in front of, you know? And I tell those stories because I think people are interested and I think they're, they're entertaining, but also for each one of those stories, I draw out a principle, uh, an important sort of basic um you know, ideal of the prosecutor. I call them together. I call them the prosecutor's code. And then I juxtapose them with an incident where Bill Barr trashed that norm or disregarded that principle. And so I think my experience sort of stands as a contrast to Bill Barr's conduct as attorney general. Well, first, you know, it's funny you said your voice showing up you through the book. I actually have the audio version today. So actually, Ellie, you, <laughs> you didn't literally have my this, voice. But you've actually been with me in the car for a while today. So I was a pleasure <laughs> I, to have I you I did. Right. Before Nick goes in, as I'm reading the book, I'm hearing your voice. Like, <laughs> it's, no, no joke. It's funny that you say that, that you've gotten that. Because it's almost like, and, and maybe it's because we follow each other on social media as well. Yeah. And I saw that you did the, you went into the booth to do the audio book. At but Rutgers, like, by the way. Yeah. Oh, but that's awesome. And, yeah. I'm, like, and I'm sitting there going is he yelling this at me? Like, what is he? <laughs> so it was very funny that you that you mentioned that. You know, one yep. thing that's one of the first things to stand out. First off, laces on shoes. Very important. <laughs> I appreciate no slip ons the courtroom. That's a good I was crushed when that happened. Yeah, yeah. We can explain that in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> but the um, first thing that came to me about in the in the subject of your book in terms of Bill Barr was a wondering I had about the intentionality. So yep. here you are as the president, you bring on someone with you know, top four. I loved how you went to the roster of this. So like, yeah, over four in terms of actual like trial experience. <laughs> um, but what's the intentionality behind that? Because yeah. I, I immediately thought about, well, then I also thought about like Justice Barrett, right? And that was the book on her too. It's like very little experience as yeah. well. And like, what would you explain that as, as a reason strategically for, for a president to bring on a AG who actually has no experience in the courtroom? Yeah. So one of my criticisms of Bill Barr and, as you say, Nick, um, the, the top really three people under him on the criminal side is that none of them had ever tried a case in court like I did. And I want to be clear because this is a little bit misconstrued in some of the reviews that are out there. Um, not harsh criticism, but it's probably my fault if multiple people don't pick it up. I don't argue that prior in you know frontline trial experience is is a litmus test. Like if you have it, you will be good. And if you don't, you will be bad. There are plenty of examples of AGs and other prosecutors, high level US attorneys who've taken the job and never been line prosecutors before and done a good job. Edward Levy, who's sort of a legendary AG is one example. He never had trial experience. And there are plenty of people who had trial experience who were terrible AGs. Jeff Sessions, I think. I don't think he was as bad as Barr, but I think he was a bad AG and he had trial experience. So it's not a sort of you know red light, green light type of test. I, I um, give various other explanations for why Bill Barr was so bad, but I think it's very relevant because the fact that Bill Barr never learned those lessons the way I did, internalized them, means that he either didn't know or didn't care about what I call the prosecutor's code. Those very basic fundamentals, you never lie. If something, if there's a fact you don't like, you put it out there and you deal with it. You don't undercut your colleagues. If you have a conflict of interest, you get the hell off the case. You never play politics and on and on. He didn't care about that. He either didn't know, didn't care or both. Does Donald Trump intentionally pick Bar Bill Barr for that reason? I don't think that's the reason. I think the reason is, is very straightforward because Bill Barr told Donald Trump and all of us in advance, 
pick me and I will clear you on the Mueller investigation. I write about this in the book. Bill Barr wrote what I call the audition memo, and he wrote it six months or so before he became AG. It was obvious at this point, this is the middle of 2018. Jeff Sessions is a goner, right? He's still the AG, but Donald Trump's openly mocking him on Twitter and, and humiliating him. And as I say in the book, I don't know how Jeff Sessions didn't ever stand up for himself. And Bill Barr goes off on his own and writes this 19, 20-page memo where he says, Robert Mueller's investigation is, and I quote, fatally misconceived, all right, fatally, dead, right? And not surprisingly, we now know uh, that that memo reached Donald Trump and Donald Trump said, there, you know, there's my guy, right? Donald Trump was always saying, where's my Roy Cohn? This guy's saying, I'm going to throw this case out. And Donald Trump goes, boom, there's my guy. And that's exactly what Bill Barr did. He had to lie to us to get there. He had to twist the law and the facts to get there, but he delivered. And I think in Donald Trump's sort of relatively straightforward, self-interested brain, he said, what's the biggest problem I have? It's the Mueller investigation. This guy says he's going to solve it for me. Done deal. That, that's my theory on that. Quick, quick thing about the audiobook, by the way, since you raised it. The only sort of semi-dispute I had with the publisher is they wanted a professional voice person to do the audio. Oh, and hell I, no. Yeah. Well, right. Exactly. And I talked to friends who had done the book and they said, no, no, no. It, there's people want to hear it in your voice. And I mean, I don't have, you know, I don't have the voice of James Earl Jones or anything, but your voice voice. And a lot of the stories are you know, how silly would it have been if, if a, a great voice actor said, when I tried my first case in the Southern District of New York, like, that's that's me. That's not, you know, so they agreed. And uh, my editor, who's who's a good guy, but enjoys sort of busting my my tail a little bit, said you were right about that. So uh, it's exhausting. But definitely, if, if you ever do your own book, definitely do your own audio. <laughs> um, Ellie. I wanted to ask you, because one of the cool things that I uh, took away from the book was, and you were very intentional with this. And I think that if I was writing a book about, you know, my days of working in television and other places, I would do something like this. It was citing the justice manual, yeah. DOJ policies. So it kind of gave people that interpretation of like, look, you may think some of this is my opinion, but some of this is our code of conduct. This is our ethics. This is like what we follow. So how intentional was that when you're writing this book, especially the cover is of Bill Barr, you know, face down kind of slump. So people could see that on the bookshelves and say, I'm, I'm not going to read that. You know, it could be biased. And you go out of your way to be very intentional with talking about the strict policies that are written in this justice manual. Take our audience through yeah. that. Yeah, You know, this book, it's important to me. This isn't just sort of me sermonizing right, or opinionating. Um, I, I constantly, as you know, throughout the book, I ground my criticisms of Bill Barr in specific DOJ rules and practices and, you know, unequivocal facts, right? And I show, I don't just say Bill Barr's a liar. I, I, I mean, I do say that, but then I prove it. I give you numerous examples of times when he was caught in a lie. So here's what Bill Barr said. Here's his exact quote. Here's the fact that contra contradicts it, right? Um, here's what Bill Barr did. It completely broke the law. Um, it completely violated written DOJ policy. There's other times when I use my own experience for, you know, not everything as a prosecutor is written in that justice manual, right? It's, it's, um, it's sort of like the great scene in A Few Good Men. You guys, have, yes. you guys have seen when that. When he hands him the book, yeah. The you, know what I'm, you know where I'm yep. going, right? Where, where Kevin Bacon, uh, who's the prosecutor, I guess, um, asks him where it says anything about Code Red in the manual. And right. I think it's Noah Wiley is the actor, but the Correct. young plebe says uh, it's not in there. And then Tom Cruise snatches it and goes, where does it say anything even here about the mess hall? Okay. It goes, it doesn't. He goes, well, how do you know where to go at chow time? Because I just follow the crap. But right. the point is there's always going to be unwritten rules as well. So I rely on both of those, but yeah, the, you know, 
I also point out in the book, I initially was positive on Bill Barr. Uh, I quote myself. I was on set at CNN the day his name was announced. And I asked a producer for that show. I said, could you go back and pull this clip from December or whatever? Because I wanted to quote myself exactly. And I said something like, I put it in the book, said something like, he's serious, he's established, he's experienced, and I think he's a strong pick. Um, and I put that in the book because I was quickly, you know, disproven because the audition memo that I mentioned earlier sort of surfaced the next day or so. But my point was, I didn't have it in for this guy in a negative way from the start. If anything, to the contrary, I, I gave him the benefit of the doubt, as did a lot of other, I quote several other sort of influential, more influential commentators, Ben Wittes, um, James Comey, who initially said he looks like a good pick and then later said, oh boy, this guy's the worst AG we've ever had. And the point is, we weren't looking to savage this guy. I wasn't looking to savage this guy. I was looking for him to do a good job, and I thought he would. And then he spent two years sort of undoing that. I give you credit because you did pull receipts in early in the book. Yeah. And I laugh as I'm hearing and then the, at the end, you bring up yours and, and, <laughs> and turn around. I was like, and that's and here I am writing this book. Right, right. Um, <laughs> you know, but you bring, one of the things you brought up in the book is the politiz politicization. Yeah. I, I still butchered that word, but it's a tough uh, one. But the, you know, but bringing politics into the Justice Department. Yeah. In your view, well, two things. One is, is Bill Barr the most egregious offender of doing that? And B, is there a, was there a history of elements of that we'd seen leading up to this? Uh, my answer is yes. He is the most egregious offender of that. I, you know, in modern history, I can't, maybe there was somebody in, you know, 1830 or something, but um you know, here's the line I draw when it comes to politics and DOJ, because people say, well, every AG is chosen by the president. I mean, of course, every AG, every president chooses an AG of his political party, often of his ideological persuasion. You know, infamously, Eric Holder said, I'm Obama's wingman. The fact that that's the lead argument against Eric Holder, I think is pretty weak. I mean, it was a dumb, wrong thing for Eric Holder to say. But people, when people go, Eric Holder's just as bad, they go, well, he said wingman and he had fast and furious. I go, okay. There's chapter one and a half. Where's your next 14 chapters, right? That I have on Bill Barr. Not to mention that John F. Kennedy got his brother. Yeah, John F. Kennedy chose <laughs> his brother, which led, to that, a, which, but, you know. which led to the country changing the nepotism laws to prevent right, right. that from happening. So yeah, there's a long history of that. But here's where I draw the line. And I, I served four years at DOJ, 04 to 08 under the Bush administration, and then four more years, 08 to 12 under the Obama administration. And one thing I say is it made no difference to me. I mean, I joke with Pre Barrara, who was my boss under the Obama administration. I say to him, actually, I'm not even joking. I say, I don't even really remember the day you started. Like it didn't change things. I and mean, that's a compliment to everybody involved because mm -hmm. politics just weren't a part of it. Now, I have no problem with DOJ implementing the policy preferences of the president. So if one president comes in and says, we're going to focus on um, the influx of opiates and we're going to really work. And another president comes in and says, we're going to de-emphasize that, but we're going to focus on police reform. And then, the, you know, that's all fair play. I have no problem with that. Where I draw the line is when politics get involved in any way in the prosecutorial function, the specific prosecutorial function, the ca individual cases, United States versus so-and-so. And that's a wall that's always been observed by Republicans and Democrats with almost absolute purity. I mean, there may be some examples or speculate, but, but Donald Trump was, first of all, it starts with Donald Trump. He was openly tweeting about cases, calling things injustices and calling for prosecutions of this person or that person. But Bill Barr indulged that. Bill Barr followed that. Bill Barr, A, I mean, first of all, intervened on behalf of uh, Donald Trump to save him from Mueller. When, by the way, Bill Barr absolutely should have recused himself, taken him. He had already expressed a decisive 
opinion on the case. I mean, I talk about instances where I was conflicted off cases for one one hundredth of that level of conflict of interest. Um, so Bill Barr ignored that, stayed on the case, cleared Mueller. Bill Barr jumped into the Michael Flynn case, the Roger Stone case. Um, and, you know, he did so in political way. You know, what, what bothered me about that is not that the attorney, attorney general certainly has the right to overrule his people. I mean, I've been overruled by higher level people. And when I was a supervisor, I overruled lower level people. The problem with the way Bill Barr did it is, one, he did it after his folks had been fully approved and vetted in DOJ. They got all the approvals they needed, went into court, put in their briefs, and then Bill Barr publicly said, now I'm going to undermine you, which is why they all, res- not, you know, most of them resigned, which is quite remarkable. The other thing is Bill Barr tried to BS us. He said, when he was asked at one point, why did you intervene in those two cases? He, was it political? He said, no, no, no. It was those two cases just were the ones that happened across my desk. I mean, get out of here, right? You got, I do the math in, in the book. I say, let's just look at this like mathematically. DOJ does 80,000 cases a year. How many does Bill Barr intervene in two? Just so happens to be for two of the president's political cronies. I mean, we are allowed to say, I just don't buy that. That's BS. And that's what I say um, in the book. It's also quite obvious. I mean, he ends up briefing the president about these cases. I mean, obviously it's political. The other thing that Barr does that's really political is he refuses to say anything that may undermine the president's political campaign slogans, right? He refused to ever say that um, Russia interfered in the election. He's always saying it was China, China, even though all the intelligence and FBI says it was it was primarily Russia. Um, he refuses to acknowledge the risk of, of domestic terrorism, of white supremacists. Um, and most damagingly, he fanned the flames of the big lie of election fraud for months leading up to the election itself. He, he turned around at the end after the fact, after the election was over. I talk about that in my book. But he, what he is now trying to make us all forget Bill Barr, because he's very image conscious and he's out there doing these sort of softball interviews. He says, oh, yeah, I stood up against this. Yeah, in December. But in June, July, August and September, when this fire was being built by Donald Trump, he was fanning the flames on national TV, on national radio in front of Congress. So I, I'm not willing to forgive that. Ali, we like to have a moment of literacy here on the program. <laughs> okay. So. There's going to be people that maybe listen to the show and they don't understand the hierarchy of how DOJ works. Um, There was a big letter that was written after the Mueller report came out and Bill Barr wrote that summation of a bunch of former prosecutors that were really against that. And you talk about that that federal judge that excoriated uh, Bill Barr in the summary. So what is something that could have been done to oust Bill Barr besides the president of the United States ousting him? Like take our audience through, you know, we're all we're talking about all these egregious things this guy did in the position of power. But we're not talking about like, well, how can we get rid of him? And there's going to be people that listen to this that say, I I don't understand. So it was just a president that could get rid of him. So explain a little bit of that, that hierarchy to 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 our to oust Bill Barr while he was in office. um, There's a there's a law school answer and a real life answer. The law school answer is he can be probably impeached, right? There is some dispute about whether a cabinet officer can be impeached. Clearly a judge can and have been impeached. Presidents can be impeached. But there was, I believe a secretary of war was impeached um, years ago. So he probably can be impeached and removed by the Senate. But the practical answer is there's no way to oust him. I mean, of course, he's not going to get impeached unless he, you know, I mean, he would have to do something way, way, way more even dramatic than he did to get enough Republicans to vote to remove him. So the realistic answer is it's entirely in the president's discretion. Now, what can 
we all do when we have sort of a runaway AG like this. We needed a stronger Congress to demand accountability. I mean, Bill Barr didn't testify in front of Congress, uh, in front of the um, House Judiciary Committee, which oversees him until the very end of his tenure. He didn't, he, I mean, he went a year and a half. Um, Congress w- played very soft with him. If you remember early on, he testified one time um, on day one, I think in the House, and then he was supposed to testify in the Senate the next day and he no-showed and they didn't do anything about it. So I think we needed to see a stronger performance out of Congress. The people I really credit um, for, and the judiciary, look, the judiciary rejected a lot of Barr's outrageous theories and called him out. I mean, several federal judges went on the record saying he essentially lied, which is a really dramatic thing. But the people who really saved us were the rank and file people at DOJ, the people who kept on doing their jobs who the right way. The, you know, Bill Barr must have set an all-time record in that seven different prosecutors across four different cases resigned in protest over Bill Barr's meddling. They resigned from the Stone case, the Flynn case, the Durham case. And then when Barr started tinkering with the election fraud rules, election fraud investigation rules, another one resigned. So I think a lot of the, you know, those are the factors that can rein in a a runaway attorney general. But part of the job is there's, and I talk about this in the book, there's a godlike level of power that goes with being AG. I mean, arguably after the president, I could probably construct an argument that's the most powerful person in the country, maybe the Speaker of the House or something. But, um, and and that's what happens when you give someone power. You, you are largely at their mercy. So we do have other forces that can rein it in a bit, but in terms of removing, you're sort of at, at that person's whim. You know, and, and the subject of attorney general is just uh, shifting to, to the current times, you know, yeah. with Merrick Garland. Um, if we're playing a game of report card, you know, where, where are you overall? I mean, again, it's um, since January, but what's been your overall assessment of our, of our new attorney general? I'm at, I'm at B minus. I'll give you the good and the bad. The bad is that Merrick Garland seems to have adopted this approach. Will this decision be viewed as a rebuke of the Trump administration or Bill Barr? If so, do opposite. He's trying to write DOJ by just avoiding any political turbulence. However, at a certain point, if that's what's driving you, then you're not doing your job as a prosecutor, right? The job of a prosecutor is not, let me just sort of see the path of least resistance. I mean, he did it when he... Merrick Garland um, continued the um, defense of Donald Trump on the E. Jean Carroll lawsuit, which I'm very critical of Bill Barr for, and the federal judge already rejected. Um, Merrick Garland said, I'm going to continue that. The decision we are waiting on is whether Merrick Garland will assume the defense of Mo Brooks on January 6th, the congressman who said, you know, kick ass and take names. If Merrick Garland takes up that defense, that case in all likelihood is going to get dismissed against Mo Brooks, that civil case. Um, and again, I think he's just sort of avoiding making waves. He backed, uh, he appealed a ruling where a federal judge destroyed Bill Barr and said Bill Barr lied about the whole Mueller report. Um, Garland appealed that. I also think Garland has not come down hard enough on the January 6th protesters. Um, he has not charged anybody with sedition, even though sedition squarely applies. Garland promised that he would go all the way up the chain as high as the evidence went. He hasn't charged, as far as I know, um, he's charged about over 550 people, but nobody other than the people who are in the Capitol, no planners, no plotters, no, no insiders. Um, so those are all things that I'm critical of Merrick Garland for. 
What I do think Merrick Garland has done, it, which is good, is he surrounded himself with very competent people. He himself has a lot of trial experience. He and Joe Biden have really observed that wall of separation between DOJ and the White House. One of the reforms that I recommend in the book is there needs to be formal rules limiting contact between the White House and DOJ. The White House actually just adopted those rules, not DOJ. Um, but they clearly have have respected that wall of separation between DOJ and the White House when it comes to prosecutions. I'll just give you a quick example. A month or so ago, maybe more than that now, I guess, when DOJ did the raid um, search warrant on Rudy Giuliani, that was a huge news story. And there was reporting afterwards that the White House was ticked because that night was Joe Biden's first address to a joint session of Congress, big moment. And they were annoyed because the Rudy thing just swamped all the headlines and sort of stole some of the thunder. And I read that and I thought, good. Good, because that's how it should be. DOJ should never be, even as a courtesy, calling over to White House and going, hey, guys, we're not going to tell you what, but we have a thing planned for today. It's going to probably get some headlines. Are, are you cool with that? Oh, you want us to wait or hurry it up a little bit or whatever? No, no, they shouldn't do any of that. So I give them high grades on that. Um, I do have more faith in Merrick Garland to not. Um, look, Merrick Garland has not lied to us yet. Sad to, sadly, that's something that we now have to you know, praise an AG for. Um, and he is not. Well, he has not injected his own party's politics into his decisions, but I do argue that he's being way too solicitous of anything that's seen as politically controversial, which is driving him in the opposite direction, which is not much better. Ali, um, one of the things I've noticed a lot about bookstores recently, having gone to a few, obviously <laughs> to purchase this fantastic book, but um, you get the conservative books in one shelf. And when you walk in, you see Promised Land becoming Michelle Obama, maybe right. Baldwin's book Huddle out there. And so I want you right now to talk to that person who's about to go into the bookstore. <laughs> they see Bill Barr's face slanted down and they say, this book is biased. I'm not even going to pick it up. I'm not even going to touch it. Yeah. What is something you want to impart to them before they walk away and make them purchase this book? Oh, interesting. Good question. Um, first of all, like I said, I, I, I quote myself in the book. I, I gave him the benefit of the doubt. I said he was a good pick when he was chosen. If you want to look, this book is packed with facts, with citations. I bring a prosecutor's approach to this. I don't just spew out an opinion and say, I don't like this, or this was lousy. Everything I say in that book is backed up by a fact, by a citation, by a specific example. So um, I, I think, you know, I, much as I would trust a jury to make a, to come to a verdict and respect that verdict, I would trust a reader to give the book a fair read with a critical eye. And I'm fairly confident where the reader will come out. But um, I, 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 I stand behind every word I say in that book. And one thing that I was told that would, hap it would happen, all, all my friends basically have written books is said, no matter what you do, you're going to find people will point out three to five to 10 errors in your book, just factual errors. Like, things you got wrong. And you can't avoid that when you're writing a 280 page book. And I will tell you, I've not seen a single one yet. I've not seen a single person who said that's wrong. He got that wrong. So um, I, I think, you know, I leave and look, the book is overwhelmingly critical of Bill Barr, but where credit is due, I do give him credit. And I do say he did that. This was a, the right decision. This, you know, for example, the, the way he handled the Hunter Biden investigation, he didn't stop it. He didn't let it be announced. He didn't, you know, he didn't. And Donald Trump was furious about this, that he, after the fact, um, and he prevented it from coming out or, you know, took steps to make sure it didn't come out. That's 
look, that's just the right thing. And that's what an AG should be doing. So um, look, don't get me wrong. It's very, very negative towards Bill Barr, but, but I think uh, any fair-minded reader, critical-minded reader can, can go through it on his or her own and, and draw his own conclusion. You know, as um, you know, part of our show always is focusing around education. That's sort of the, yeah. the slant I bring here. Early in the book, you make a great comment about you know walking the halls of SDNY. Yeah. Um, you know, carried a lot more of an experiential learning for you than anything you had picked up in law school. Um, so, with that in mind, if you if you are you know taking law professors through or like revisiting curriculum, what do you think would be most helpful? And if you had to revamp, you know what oh. what the key element like what law school is designed to do, or at least it, within its curriculum, like what are some things yeah. maybe from SDNY or just your legal experience in general that would be helpful for you know for an aspiring lawyer to to take in as part of the education process on route to you know becoming yeah. a member of SDNY or anywhere else. That's a great question. I don't think I've been asked that. Um, first of all, aspiring law students go to law school, do it. Um, you know, read the book. Actually, I've heard from a lot of people who said this, this book actually inspires mm -hmm. me to want to go to law school. But if you if you're serious about it and, and your heart's in it, go. Um, do clinical programs at law school. Law school is way too academic. It's way too theoretical. I know it sounds silly to say school is too academic, but um, you know, there's so much emphasis in law school about making law review, which writes these scholarly journals that like a hundred people read. Um, what I didn't make it, <laughs> I tried out for the Harvard Law Review. I didn't make it, but instead I did Harvard Defenders, which was a program where you would, we would defend real cases, poor people in Boston and Cambridge who had been accused of minor crimes, not, you know, not major felonies. And you would work with witnesses and cops and do many trials, not jury trials, but trials in front of judges. And I won some and lost some, but that was a great experience that really sparked my interest. The other thing is search out, prof professors should either have more hands-on experience or at least bring in um, guest speakers. And you know, I loved my law school. I felt very, very lucky to go there, but very few of my professors had actually been trial lawyers. The ones who had direct experience were the ones who made the greatest impression on me. Like the, one of the main ones was Charles, Professor Charles Ogletree, um, who was a legendary trial lawyer. I took him for trial workshop and we, we would watch him in awe and say, I want to be half of that someday. And I'll tell you guys just a quick story. I guess I won't say the name, but I had one particular professor for criminal procedure and I loved her. I said, wow, she is, she's the best professor, one of the best professors I've ever had because she had all these great war stories. Like I tell the war stories in the book. Oh, the time she was a, she was a public defender um, in a big city. And she would tell stories. Oh, the time I went into a crack house because I, I found a witness that I needed there and I dragged him out and I put him on the stand in court. And I was, you know, wow. And then years later, I read a profile on this professor in the alumni magazine. And it turned out she had worked at the public defender's office for 18 months. And so I don't fault her, but mm. the fact that a person who worked a year and a half struck me as being like by far the most experienced actual hands-on person, I think says something about our education. So um, I will go on record with the strange statement of education is too academic, or at least law school education is too academic. It needs to be more practical and more hands-on. Ellie, before we let you go, um, I wanted to ask you some legal news that's making yeah. its way um, and it's impacting a little bit of my family uh, okay. because my wife is from Florida and yep. recently Governor DeSantis has been signing some legislation about these cruise ships and the cruise lines that can't mandate 
vaccination, uh, you know, proof for, for people that are getting on the boat. And then the cruise lines got around it by making all these regulations that, right. well, okay, you don't want to get vaccinated. That's great. You can only <laughs> use this little part of the boat. Yeah. So where do you see now that it's coming into the legal realm, yeah. where do you see a lot of this with private businesses, uh, public businesses? Yeah. Like, where do you see a lot of this shaking out in the legalities of it? Because we're seeing a lot of states that are starting to say, nope, you don't have to show vaccine proof. And the companies are like, we want to. You're seeing it play out with the NFL right now. Right. I was going to say the NFL, yeah. Yeah, what's what's happening with the players union versus the actual league. So take a, our audience through that. There's a, first of all, there's obviously a lot of political uh, posturing going on both sides here, right? Um, generally speaking, I think that private businesses and governments are going to win in courts when it comes to vaccine mandates or, or less than that vaccine sort of incentive. So let, let, let's back up here. The Supreme Court has long held, dating back to 1905, that states and governments can impose mandatory mandatory vaccine requirements. And then in 1922, I think, the, the Supreme Court again upheld uh, mandatory vaccines for public school children. Now, if you're talking about private entities, the NFL or Carnival Cruise Lines, if anything, they have more leeway in what they do than our public entities, our states, our school boards, that kind of thing. So start from that uh, position. And then and you hit on this point exactly, Mike, which is if you look at the NFL's policy, and I can't say I'm familiar with the, with the cruise lines policy, but they're not actually smartly, right? There's some lawyers involved in this. They're not mandating vaccines. What they're doing is setting rewards, incentives, punishments, if you are or are not. And generally speaking, that's going to make it even sort of more legally defensible. So I think if governments are going to go into court and say, um, Your Honor, I would like to prevent, prohibit this private company from requiring or rewarding slash punishing vaccines, I just think you're going to have a very, very low success rate. I mean, private companies take steps all the time designed to protect their workers' health. I mean, think about the NFL, right? A wide receiver goes over the middle and, and a D-back spears him in the head when he's not looking. What happens to that D-back? He gets thrown out of the game and suspended and fined, right? And we're all fine with that because the, it's a way to incentivize players to not do things that are dangerous to other players. Um, and so I, I just think if DeSantis, and, and by the way, watch for a lot of politicians to say, oh, I'm against this. I'm going to file a lawsuit or something and then not to actually file a lawsuit or, or sometimes they don't even care. They'll file a lawsuit and lose and say, oh, the liberal courts or the conservative courts or, you know, the darn courts got in my way. It's not even so much about Donald Trump actually sort of showed this. It's not even always about winning or losing the court. It's about having the fight. But I would be surprised in general if, if, if any significant number of cases succeed where a government is saying private industry, you can't regulate this way. Well, Ellie, great insight as always. The book is fantastic. Like I mentioned, Hatchet Man, How Bill Barr Broke the Prosecutor's Code and Corrupted the Justice Department is available wherever books are sold. Third Degree Podcast, available wherever you get your podcast. CNN Legal Analyst, former federal prosecutor, teaches at Rutgers. I mean, I don't know what else. He collects the toll booth money over there by Metuchen. Like, Ellie, you are fantastic, my friend. We appreciate having you on and, and seeing another Rutgers uh, alum uh, take off. So thank you again. And anytime you're welcome to come back on the program, my friend. Uh, Mike and Nick, thanks again for having me. I love what you guys do. I love that you built this thing yourself. And, we're, you know, it, it's a nationwide podcast, but but we're Jersey Jersey roots, right? Rutgers Always. roots. <laughs> That's right. Well said. Thanks, right, guys. Ellie. Thanks, gentlemen.
All right. That was the fantastic Ellie Honig. Like I mentioned, that guy's got way too many jobs. Uh, Nick, I only got like two or three jobs. This guy's got like 20. But like I mentioned, author of Hatchet Man, How Bill Barr Broke the Prosecutor's Code and Corrupted the Justice Department. That book is available now wherever books are sold. You can go get it. Uh, any bookstore, Amazon, wherever you get your books. Um, Third Degree Podcast. I've, I talked about it the last time Ellie was on the program. But if you really want to find out about all the legal news of the week. Uh, that is one of the best places to go find out about it. Um, and also you can catch Ellie all the time on CNN as a legal analyst. He's got so much great experience as a former federal prosecutor. Nick, I know you had a bunch of thoughts about the book. Uh, you were telling obviously Ellie about how you listened to it um, through his own voice that he's done. Also, you can get Ellie's book, like he mentioned on audiobooks. Take our audience a little bit through like your assessment of the book, Ellie, overall, the subject overall of Bill Barr's tenure as AG. You know, it's I mean, first and foremost, it's a great book. I think, you know, it reminds me of some of the other authors we've had on who who do a really good job of as storytellers. You know, Ellie's book opens you know, with a personal story of one of the first of the first case he tries, you know, uh, for you know, the Southern District of New York. Um and he, like from that, like he then goes into it really just dives into, you know, Bill Barr and, you know, his time as attorney general. But um, but it was awesome. It, it really felt like just it felt like um, like American legal system for dummies. And it's interesting because we had, you know, Elion previously. We talked about, the you know, jury selection, you know, for the uh, Derek Chauvin trial. And even then, you know, there was just a, a lot of just teachable moments, like stuff that we really don't know about the legal system. Ellie does an exceptional job. You know, and he's a t again, he's a teacher, right? Like this is what he does of taking us through it. And this book serves as a perfect example of it. And there's a flow to the book, too. It feels like an it really feels like an opening statement. Like he's definitely back in the courtroom, you know, making the case and proving it. You know, why why Bill Barr was a, a dangerous person you know, in the seat of attorney general. So, and then on a personal note, you know, as a fellow Rutgers person, just really happy for him, continue to blow up, you know, doing the amazing things he does. Uh, but just that sense of community, you know, for the three of us, you know, talking, talking shop, talking about this book and supporting him along the way. I mean, that was awesome. Um, yeah. He, you know, you know, it's funny that, uh, that you took that, um, from the book about it's, it was almost like he was going to trial. Like he was trying to prove a mm -hmm. case as to why Bill Barr did the X, Y, and Z. You know, we asked him about it, but that's the way I felt reading the book. Like it's very, if I were to write a manual about one of the former places I worked at for a long time, it would be similar to that. It would be, hey, look, these are my examples when I worked there. This is what our code of conduct said there. Like, I'm not just making this up. Like we followed these, you know, rules and regulations. And he, he he emphasizes that a lot. Like I asked him on the program, the justice manual, like he references it a lot in the book to kind of make his overall point. So if you're if you're into, you know, you want to read something uh, about, you know, the previous administration or any type of book that can really break down the legalities behind a former attorney general abuse of power and really give you, you know, factual information as to why this was wrong, why the Department of Justice should remain a neutral entity in all of this. Ellie's book is fantastic for that. I highly recommend it. Go get it now wherever books are sold. Hatch Man, How Bill Barr Broke the Prosecutor's Code and Corrupted the Justice Department. Um, and check out Ellie. Like I mentioned, that, that podcast, Third Degree Podcast, I mean, he's getting so much promotion from me out of this, but it really is breaking down the legal news. If you're not, if you're not, if you don't work in the legal community, that is a perfect podcast for you to find out uh, any any type of issues and the legalities behind it. For this podcast, you want to continue to support us, YouTube, 
Nick is smashing the subscribe button, audio podcast platforms. You know him by now. Please leave us a five-star review and comment. Not a four-star review like that guy left you. The here other it comes. Day, Nick. Yeah, yeah, man. I'm, I'm glad you brought it. There's some smoke to be had here. Um, we've always, always said this, and I gladly steal this from Bomani Jones. You know, five-star reviews are appreciated. You leave a four-star, you're a hater. And if you're going to leave that four-star, please tell us why. Like, seriously own it what could we do better uh, yeah. feedback's always appreciated but seriously folks this is a growing community you're all family if you're hearing our voices right now or subscribing to the patreon five stars mean a lot it helps to promote the show and we do good shit so yeah to so the four star review um that's cute and all but you know but five stars are appreciated boy that is his tame down version if you want to hear the unleashed version <laughs> you can head over to patreon you listen wherever audio podcast platform click on that patreon link come on and become a subscriber for three dollars folks cup of coffee and a bagel nick that's how we sell it on it because they, it puts it in their head a cup of coffee and a bagel that sounds delicious Just, you know, yeah. they don't want to hear the price point they want to hear cup of coffee and a bagel ig tiktok at can we please talk podcast twitter at can we please talk and if you liked today's topic you like ellie as a guest you want to learn some more stuff you want to get something off your chest email us folks we want people to email us can we please talk podcast at yahoo.com we got some fantastic topics in the coming weeks we'll be back with some more new episodes as always i'm mike leon grateful for another second or second time return that's three for us uh super grateful for ellie uh, i am of course nick severi take care everybody we'll see you next time later